Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today, of course, though, we are so excited to have Lainey Zumas with Porchista Hawkpur. Um, Porchista Hawkpur is an extremely accomplished um, person. Um, my goodness, looking through her bio, um, she is a creative writing instructor. She is a literary critic all over. Um, and she's on the one thing that caught my attention in particular, though, is she's on the advisory board of Roar, a magazine uh, about intersectional feminist resistance. Love it. Um, she's also the author of two novels um, on a top 10 American writers list, uh, top 10 amazing female novelists, um, just so widely praised, and the new book, Sick, which will be out later this year. It isn't even out yet, and it's on BuzzFeed's 33 most exciting new books, Bustle's 28 most anticipated books, Nylon's 50 books we can't wait to read, Best of Huffington Post, Bitch, Rumpus. I mean, it's like insane. It's an honor to have her here. Um, and today is the day of the Women's March. We are two days from the 45th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. It is such an auspicious day to have two punk rock literary women discussing red clocks. Um, Lainey Zumas' book is so good. I am so excited for this event. Um, it has generated so much excitement also throughout the book world, and it's just, it's thrilling to see a book explode onto the scene like this one today. Um, it's her second novel. She also has a story collection. They've both been widely praised, but Red Clocks is just seizing people's imaginations on a whole other level. It has been wonderfully well-reviewed. It has been called strange, lovely, luminous, hilarious, terrifying, masterful, bristling, chilling, stunning, timely, fun, poignant, suspenseful, cathartic, excruciating, vivid, fearless, classic, and sensational. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. Hi, everyone. Hi. Thank you for coming. Um, and thank you to Skylight. And thank you to Porchista. Um, uh, I'm really thrilled um, to have Porchista here in conversation with me. Um, we hadn't met in person until today, but I followed her work and um, you know, know her to be a luminous writer and an activist. Um, and it's an honor to do an event with you. Um, so yeah, today is, as we know, is the one year anniversary of Trump's inauguration. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about the activism of women and genderqueer people, the fierce and beautiful resistance that millions of us are putting up every day in public and private ways, in the streets and in our kitchens and in halls of power and on the internet. And I've been thinking a lot about my gratitude for the feminist activists of decades and centuries past who fought battles we will never need to fight, as well as battles we are now faced with fighting all over again. This reading is dedicated to them. So my novel, Red Clocks, envisions an America where the so-called personhood amendment has successfully passed through the US Congress, uh, and the Roe v. Wade decision has been overturned. Abortion and in vitro fertilization are illegal, and um, a zygote, a single-celled zygote, has all the rights of a legal person to life, liberty, and property. There are five main characters in Red Clocks, four of whom live in present-day Oregon, and the fifth, who's a 19th century female polar explorer. I labeled the five characters according to their roles or functions. Biographer, polar explorer, wife, daughter, mender. I did this in part because I wanted to call attention to the inadequacy of labels. Um, all of us have multiple identities, but sometimes uh, that gets erased by the fact that we find ourselves reduced to a single one, whether it's by an immigration law, or a doctor, or our neighbor, or a magazine headline. Um, and so by giving labels to the women, I wanted to sort of um, just raise questions about that. Um, tonight, I'm going to read a couple of sections from Red Clocks that center on a character named Jin Percival. She's also known as the Mender, um, and known to some people in the book as, as a witch. Um, She's an herbalist who lives in a, the forest near a town in Oregon, um, on the Oregon coast, and she provides care to people who can't afford care. 
this character emerged from my interest in witches, uh, my interest in the idea of a powerful woman outside of society, someone who's both shunned and needed. Um, I'm fascinated by how the figure of the crone, especially magical, so-called so unbeautiful, unreproductive, defies the order of normative femininity, which wants the female body to be young and pleasing and fertile. The Mender character in my book isn't strictly a crone, but she's definitely not pleasing or compliant. She has stepped out away from the order and chosen to live out of order. And her antecedents historically are women who've been harassed, punished, or killed because people were afraid of them or suspicious of them or wanted to blame them for ills of the community. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just go ahead and jump in. Um, and read a, a few sections. <clears throat> the client Clementine comes to the mender's door with a picnic cooler and a pain. Last week's complaint was vicious burning while she peed. Today's pain is new. Pants off and lie down, says the mender. Clementine unzips herself, kicks away the jeans. Her thighs are white and very soft, underwear the size of a shoelace. She plumps back on the mender's bed and opens her knees, a vesicle on her south lip, the inner fold, white-red in the brownie pink. How much does it hurt? Oh, God, a lot, says Clementine. Do I have syphilis? No, plain old cuntwort. Clementine says, my Javiva is having a bad year. Purslane, bishop's wart, devil's claw, ten strands of human hair, and sesame oil. The mender dabs a few drops on the wart, recaps the tincture. Put this on it twice a day. More warts are likely to join it, possibly a lot more, but she sees no cause to say this. After Clementine leaves, the mender misses her, wants back the soft white thighs. She likes her lady's big serenic mermaids of land, pressing and twisting in fleshful bodies. She lies naked with the cat by the stove, rain steady on the roof and the woods black and the foxes quiet. The innermost chamber of her left ear catches powder post beetles scratching at the roof joists, laying eggs in the seams of the wood. Does she get frightened up here all the way in the middle of nothing? But trees are not nothing, nor are cats, goats, chickens, owls, foxes, bobcats, black-tailed deer, long-eared bats, red-tailed hawks, dark-eyed juncos, bald-faced hornets, morning cloak butterflies, black vine weevils, and souls fled from their mortal casings. She is only alone human-wise. From the limping hen, two eggs come down, one cracked, one sound. Thank you, says the mender to the hen, a dark Brahma with a plum black wattle. Because she limps so badly is not one of the winners. This hen is the mender's favorite. A daily happiness to feed her, to save her from foxes and rain. The mender stirs the egg with vinegar and shepherd's purse for the client coming later, an overbleeder. The drink will stanch her clotty, aching flow. She's got no job and no insurance. I can pay you with batteries, her note said. The goats aren't home yet. Cramp of worry. Last year they wrecked a campsite near the trail. Some dumb tourist left his food out. When the mender found them, the tourist was pointing a rifle. In Europe, they used to hold trials for misbehaving animals. Wasn't just the witches they hanged. A pig was sent to the gallows for eating a child's face. A mule roasted alive for having been penetrated by its human master. For the unnatural act of producing an egg, a rooster was burned at the stake. Bees found guilty of stinging a man to death were suffocated in the hive, their honey destroyed lest murder honey infect the mouths that ate it. She with murder honey on her teeth shall bleed salt from where two curves of thigh skin meet. Tasting honey from the body of a bee with devil face shall start this salty blood. Faces of bees who have done murder that do resemble those of starving dogs whose eyes grow more human looking as they starve. If a town be swarmed by bees with devil face, and those bees do drip honey into open mouths, the body of a woman with honey tooth, bleeding thigh salt, shall be lashed to whatever stake will hold her. 
The bee swarm shall be gathered in a barrel and dumped upon the fire that eats her. The honey teeth do catch flame first, sparks of blue at the white before the red tongue catches two and the lips. Bees' bodies, when burning, do smell of hot marrow. The odor makes onlookers vomit, yet still they look on. This predicament is not new. The mender's one of many. They aren't allowed to burn her, at least, though they can send her to a room for 90 months. Officials of the Spanish Inquisition roasted them alive. If the witch was lactating, her breasts exploded when the fire grew high. Um, the, the next little section I'm going to read um, is, is from the perspective of the daughter character who is 15 and has been impregnated by a classmate. I've been thinking about the language around getting pregnant. Like, it's, it always like erases like the, the, sec the other half of that action. It's like she, she got pregnant. Like, it's weird. It's so strange. Um, uh, uh, so this daughter character is trying to figure out how to end the pregnancy. Um, she doesn't want to try sneaking into Canada for fear of being arrested. And she's heard scary things about the underground clinics in the U.S., also known as termination houses. So she pays a visit to the mender. The three o'clock bell is still clanging when she heads up Lupatia Street toward the cliff path. In her pocket are directions to the witch's house. The heart of a guinea pig weighs three ounces. Of a giraffe, 26 pounds. The daughter can hear the thumping of her own aorta as she crunches over needles and rocks and leaves, following what she prays is the right path. You just drink some wild herbs, explained her friend's sister. Her body will be clean again, but it will be a crime. Less of a crime than crossing into Canada for it, but they could still lock her up in Bolt River Youth Correctional Facility. And it might hurt. Less than it would hurt at a termination house where the used rusty. The daughter walks faster. Her neck is sweating, thighs stinging, ribs loud with cramp. Her friend refused to come with. If they were caught, the police might think she was seeking one too, and she'd be charged with conspiracy to commit murder, and she's already 16, and at 16 you can be prosecuted as an adult. A cabin appears, a plain little log square, windows lit, smoke drifting from the chimney. Her friend's sister said to look for chickens and goats as proof it was the witch's place and not a rapist's. Although rapists could have chickens and goats. The daughter sees what might be a coop, but no chickens. Are they sleeping? And a shed in which she sidles up to check are two little goats, one black, one gray. They watch her with robot eyes. Shh, she says, though they haven't made a sound. Chimney puffing, lights on, the witch is home. So why is the daughter dawdling by these goats? But what if the witch hates unannounced visitors? What if she has guns? It's legal to shoot someone if you say they were invading. Going up the cabin steps, the daughter takes long breaths like mom taught her to do at gymnastics meets when she was still short enough for gymnastics. Knock, knock. The person who opens the door is not old, is even almost sort of pretty. Big green eyes, dark hair, and coils around pale cheeks. Her outfit, velvet choker and coarse sack dress, is Victorian prostitute meets Cro-Magnon. Is this even the witch? The person frowns and stares. Hello, says the daughter. Is it the witch's servant or the witch's younger sister? The person crosses her arms over her chest, begins to scratch her sack-covered shoulders. The fingernails make a whispering sound. I'm sorry to disturb you, but I'm looking for... I, I don't know if you're Jin Percival. Why? She stares sideways at the daughter, more like an animal than a human. I need some gynecological help. How did you come here? I heard about you from Clementine. Clementine still frowning but now smiling too, a face pulled two ways. She said to tell you the um, wart is gone? Okay. The person stands back. The daughter steps in. The room is warm and smells of wood. Its rafters are strung with tiny white lights, shelves packed with jars and bottles and books. There is an old-fashioned stove. No cauldron. 
Um, and before I stop and uh, start our conversation, I'd like to read just one more passage, which is about the polar explorer character in this book. Her name's Ivor Minerva Dotcher. Um, uh, and she, uh, what I'm going to read is what happens to her body um, after she dies, um, the disintegration of her body uh, in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, this moment speaks to one of the dynamics I was trying to pursue in Red Clocks, the, um, which is interbeing, interdependence, um, the ways that each of us is connected to other creatures and to larger systems, political and social and ecological, um, and in ways that we're not necessarily aware of kind of in our ordinary routines. So this is the polar explorer. She is menstruating when she dies. Strips of burlap wadded into her crotch unfurl in the water, making a brief red cloud. A Greenland shark smells the blood from two miles off, turns in a slow, silent arc, and aims his sleek bulk in the blood's direction. Crumbs of her skin drift up into the brine channels. Reindeer fur and flannel threads catch on ice dendrites reaching down from the undershelf. After the apex predators have had their fill, the smaller ones feast. Hagfish, lobsters, limpets, clams, brittle stars. Then the amphipods, the bone-eating worms, the bacteria. A narwhal hunting for air holes drags its shadow across her. Krill gnaw green blooms of algae off the ceiling of ice. The explorer comes over time apart. Weeks after digesting Minerva Dutcher's flesh, the Greenland shark is caught near the western coast of Iceland. The fishermen lop off his head and bury his body in gravel and sand, heap it with stones that press the shark's na natural poisons, urea and trimethylamine oxide, out of its body. After two or three months, the fish, by now fermented, is sliced and hung in a shed to dry. The pieces grow a brown crust, a shocking smell. When citizens of Reykjavik eat the shark on December 25th, 1885, they are eating Ivor Minerva Dotter. She did not leave behind money or property or a book or a child, but her corpse kept alive creatures who in turn kept other creatures alive. Into other bodies she went, but also other brains. The people who read her article on the contours and tendencies of Arctic sea ice were changed by the explorer. Her biographer was changed. And if the biographer's book ever gets finished, if it ever finds any readers, Minerva Dotter will persist in them. Thank you. Wow. Um, I was hoping, I sort of was in my head hoping you would read that. Oh, and yeah. you read that. It's amazing. It's so nice. Um, okay, well, I have many questions and many things to say, um, but one of the things I wanted to start with, just a few words of extreme praise, because I'm so, so happy to be here with Lainey. Um, there's a whole like euphemistic saying in literature where people say like you don't want to hurt someone's feelings when you read a book that you don't like. So I've always taught people to say this: I'm the I'm not the right audience for this book. And I, and I you guys should all use that. That's a great thing to tell, <laughs> tell someone. But when I read this, I was like, I am the exact right audience for this book. And I felt the whole time I was reading it, I was like, she wrote this book for me. I'd never met Lainey until just a few minutes ago and it was amazing but then when I was also thinking about it I thought oh she wrote it for this person and this person and this person and I've told all sorts of people in my life and they're all incredibly different so I'm kind of amazed by a book that actually I could recommend to so many people I mean I know it sounds I'm Iranian we always sound hyperbolic but I really have to tell you this honestly this is a one of the greatest books I've read in years. I, I think I've only felt this way about Hong Kong's The Vegetarian and um, maybe one other book. I mean, it's stunning. I actually feel speechless being here with Lainey because it's, to me, a work of true genius. And from a craft level, as a writer, I could look at it and think, holy moly, how did she do this? As a reader, I'm just... 
I feel like it's like in some ways an act of love writing something like this because you can feel that. I mean, you are caring for us so much in this moment having composed a book like this. So it's just, I feel almost terrified to even approach this. Um, but I do want to say that, that, that I can't, I would hand sell it to every single person out on that street if I could, because I think this is really, really essential reading. Not only is it a brilliant work of art, but it's like, if you're interested in resistance literature, whatever that is, I mean, it's, there can be many different things, but this is, would be like on that list, like very high up. Um, and I, you may have already seen it compared to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. And that was 1985, but it's still a classic that many of us, you know, grew up with. Maybe we could start with that question, right? Because it's like everywhere, it's everywhere in the write-ups about you, and I get why, but... Maybe we should just go for that. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting because uh, um, I, I, I have been asked that question a lot recently. Um, is this book like The Handmaid's Tale? You know, and um, the the world that that Atwood imagines in that book um, is is it takes takes its details from things in our history, like things that have actually happened, including um, certain systems of slavery, including um, d different systems of, of sort of disciplining and punishing women's bodies. Um, but the, the way in which she the, the world ends up being is pretty clearly different from our world in, in a lot of its details and the, the sort of roles that... Um, people are forced to play in, in society and, and how society is set up. And um, when I was writing Red Clocks, uh, especially when, when I was revising it after Trump was elected, um, that's when I made the decision to change it from like a near future to just this day or next week with this, you know, a couple of changes in the laws, but, but essentially everything else the same. And so that's a way in which I, I think... Um, you know, if you think of labels like, you know, we were talking about the label dystopian or, or speculative and, and what those things mean, and I think they're very flexible labels and, and can include a lot of different kinds of work. Um, but when I recently was looking at the word dystopia and trying to think of different prefixes for it, and um, one that made some sense to me was, was like a paratopia, you know, something that was near or around, um, but, but not necessarily... Um, f like much worse than, uh, right. if that makes sense, right. and um, and part of uh, uh, again why I, I mean, there's different kinds of fear. I think that you know, if, if I go to fiction for an experience of of being jolted or afraid or or made to really pay attention to something, there's so many different ways that can happen. Thank God. I mean, um, and I, I think in that particular book, it's it's a fairly drastic one, a, a kind of spectacular one, and um, and in in my book, it's more ordinary. I think the fear. Yeah. yeah, that's something so potent about this book too, because you've got you know you talked about the five main characters, right? So you've got um, you know biographer, polar explorer, wife, mender, daughters, these like archetypes in a way, uh, but they're very real too. I mean, that's the thing that. I, I'm, I'm not a person who's scared to talk about experimental literature. I know many people don't like that label, but I have found a home in it, so for me it's a happy label. But I, I think like there is an ex obvious experimental aspect to this, but you also do the thing that I think the greatest experimental literature does, where you actually really inhabit it like an actor. There's a, my, my old mentor, the Chinese avant-garde writer, Tsen Shui, always talks about writing being a performance. And so I've added to that where I feel like writing can be a performance of yourself at a particular moment in time. And that, that really feels like this book to me. And so you end up feeling these characters in very everyday moments. They're not like constant dynamic chaos or anything. It's kind of like maybe what our lives look like today, <laughs> where we're just living with this noise in the back and we're still trying to eat our meals and drive and see our friends and take care of who we love, but there's quite a lot of chaos going on unendingly. <laughs> um, so it's it, it's quite amazing. I mean, the label thing was also something, because there's a part of me that just like feels so overwhelmed when like 
you know, my second book was seen as dystopian too, dystopian, speculative fiction, um, feminist fiction. It's always, to me, the funny thing about those labels seems like they're trying to tell, tell people we're different from those other women. Mm -hmm. And those women are like not as good as us. Or we're kind of the weird ones from those women. It's some weird way of dividing women. The underestimation of women, I think, is at the heart of this because people think that women readers are not capable even though they're the majority of people who buy books on, in every genre. Drives me nuts. Yeah, and I think the ways that genre labels in, in general kind of get dealt with by, you know, the, the machine of capitalism is, mm. is really like, you know, how can we slot this so that it will, you know, sell in a particular way? Or how can we, we kind of like, you know, pigeonhole this rather than coming to a work of art in all its sort of singularity as well as its connections to other other things. Um, yeah. But yeah, to, to put the label feminist on something versus like, oh, it's just speculative <laughs> fiction or is it feminist spectral? <laughs> right. yeah, it's, it's a whole rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, but those things are here too in a way that you own, I think, completely singularly. I mean, I don't think anyone has, I feel that this is unlike any other book. And, you know... I would like to also highlight other people who feel the same. Karen Russell, Maggie Nelson, Elisa Nutting, Lydia Yuknovich, Emily Friedland, Christine Scott, Joy Williams. I mean, you have a lot of really amazing um, people supporting you with this book. When you were composing it, I was wondering about this. Like, I've seen Lainey's work before, and we were even in New York, I think, at the same time, but just dealing with different stuff. Um, did you feel this, like, these supported when you were writing a book like this? Because I also think it would be kind of traumatic and difficult and dark at times. Or what was the composition of this book like? Like, how did you write it? Mm. Um, for a lot of the time I was writing, I started writing it in 2010. And, um, you know, I, I spent the majority of time writing it fairly sort of isolated and, and not showing it to people, and which is in, in part my temperament, you know, yeah. like... I don't want to show it too soon or, or before, you know, it's... Um, but I, I think that it, it, it's hard to answer that question because I think in all my writing, and, and I, yeah, I think in this book too, the support I feel or the, the nourishment um, I feel is from other books and other writers and uh, whether it's someone like you or Janice Lee um, or if it's... Virginia Woolf or Dorothy Richardson or Audre Lorde or Angela Davis, like people who have done certain kinds of work that, that I benefit from and, and I admire and am fed by. And uh, that's always with me, I think. And I don't, it sounds, I, I don't mean to romanticize it because I, I think, but, but it's crucial, you know, to have um, the people you read, you know, across centuries or, or countries or, or different sort of social dynamics um, be informing your work. But in terms of people I was actually talking to on a daily basis, it was pretty lonely, like, writing this. Um, and, uh, and also revising it um, in the wake of the November 2016 election was, was very difficult at times. Like, and I was just full of... I mean, as many of us were, just like anxiety and fear and like horror and um, because so some of the research I did um, around the laws that are that pertain in red clocks that the, these laws, with the exception of the this thing called the pink wall, which is that you know Canada won't let uh, women into their country who are seeking abortions or IVF treatments. Um, that was just that was made up but like pretty much everything else comes from the mouths and brains of like Mike Pence and Paul Ryan and, and um, men who were already powerful legislators you know in 2010 or 2011 2012 but who had not yet sort of risen to the kind of control they now have um, you were so kind of watching the situation for a while so my guess is you were not surprised when, as some were with the turnout of, of what our life look like, looks like now? Uh, I, I mean, I, I still was surprised, actually, yeah. because I, I thought, I don't know. And then, of course, I felt naive for feeling surprised, you know? Right, um, right. But, yeah. No, I think yeah. that's, it, it's, you know, it has... As, it's amazing because it has aspects of a cautionary tale, but it's post-cautionary tale. Mm. So it's incredible how... And, and reading it at this moment is really fascinating because you're like, 
we're in, the, we're literally like in the middle of the cautionary tale. We're in the middle. We don't know the end. Mm-hmm. We don't know the beginning. Um, and you know, the, the old, uh, oh God, who says this, Kermode, who said this, Frank, uh, I forget who the literary scholar was, often talks about the anxiety of humans in the middest, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that we are always in the middle of the story of humanity and we don't know where it's really going to go so we can't handle middles we can handle beginnings and ends but we don't know how to be in the middle mm-hmm. and that really speaks I think to today I also read some and I'm going to turn I'm look, think about questions because I'm going to come at you in a second but I just have so many questions myself I'm going to try to answer some essential ones um Oregon is a big part of this book too and you saw in some of the reading there there's like beautiful descriptions of the natural world that I think are just stunning and you learn from them there's like facts in them I would mm-hmm. I would keep putting it down and then I'd be like I need to read about whale cocks at one point <laughs> I actually did that I was like yeah or like some eight obscure, to ten feet uh, yeah of a blue whale like yes. <laughs> that was I was like did I need that info but I did somehow I like now walk with that info it's amazing there's like a lot in here that you'll learn about it's amazing um god I don't even know where I was going with that yeah it was uh where was I going with that? I totally just blanked oh, on that. Oregon. Oh, Oregon. Uh, yeah. yeah. Can you talk? About, I just got blinded by whale cocks. Amazing. Um, can you talk about Oregon and place there too? And also maybe place also, you know, we talked a little bit upstairs about just sort of being in 90s people and punk rock and Gen X and all that stuff too. That I, I read someone saying that this was like the Gen X novel that everyone's waited for. And a way I get that. As a compliment, I really, really get that and love that. I've really wanted someone to write this book. Hmm. Um, yes, so Oregon, I, I feel like, so I moved to Oregon in 2011 to take a job at Portland State University where um, s- some alums of that <laughs> August MFA program are here tonight, um, which I'm happy to see. Uh, so uh, the bulk of the book was written when I was living in Oregon, and um, I as soon as I got there I was like oh this is if I had moved here you know 20 years ago when I was like still you know like or even 10 years ago when I was playing in bands and like had a different kind of relationship to like you know early bedtime you know (laughs) um it would have like I I felt almost like a nostalgia for the Portland that I never knew you know that I, I was walking around these like streets that were like cleaner than they probably were 15 years ago and um but that's a sort of different thing what I wasn't prepared for is um what I started learning about the history of Oregon and its whiteness and the the different kinds of you know deeply racist white supremacist legislation that had kind of governed the history of the state like from its inception like I think it was was one of the states that when it entered the union it was like um, already had a law in the books that like African Americans could not own property there or and they had like sundown laws where um, if you were black you couldn't be on the streets after sundown and um, just things that um, are really horrifying and that I all I knew sort of about the kind of like you know, racial stuff in Portland, it's like, oh, Portland's the whitest city in America. Like, it's the slow white village, I had heard it described as. Um, and But I, I just hadn't understood the, the extent to which its history was built upon um, these, upon white supremacy in, in really kind of, like, overt ways. And um, yeah. so uh, when I was writing Red Clocks, increasingly I wanted there to be at least some of the characters to, to be... Um, kind of questioning their own whiteness and and what it meant for them to be white. Um, the daughter character, her best friend, is black, and um, you know she like grew up with her, and and sh- they take pretty different paths, um, in part based on one having white privilege and one not. And uh, the but I didn't. It's it's this is gonna not be very articulate, but like. I wanted to focus on the whiteness of the daughter and not on just like, oh, that's your person of color friend over there. You know, it's like I wanted the daughter to start being like, what does this mean? Like, what is this category that I inhabit that gives me this privilege but also does all this damage, you know? It's done really well in this book, too. There's a lot of tough conversations that are handled in really good ways in this book because you're given examples. I mean, the character of Ro, is that how you say Ro? Yeah. I bonded with that character so deeply because so many aspects of her life I was living through but watching somebody talk about those things 
and work through those things in your book. I mean, it really reminded me of how books can be the ultimate safe spaces to work out things. I know some people don't like the term safe space. I love it. It saves my students' lives all the time, so I will use it forever. <laughs> um, so just like microaggressions and all the words that people think they're sick of, but we, people literally are alive because of them. Um, there's a lot of that in here. There's a lot of examples of that that are done really well. It's another reason I've recommended it to people because it's really great how your characters and how we feel the author, but not overly. We know how you are seeing it, but it's not in a way that would... Um, I think a lot of people could enter it. Mm. A lot of different people could enter it. And that's one of the beauties of sort of third person and, and like all of the five characters' threads are written in third person and it's a close third. It's a pretty intimate third, but there's yeah. still that sort of distance um, and I'm not having to kind of construct, a, a, uh, you know, I'm the voices are different um, and that manifests through free and direct speech, but there's not the sense of like, okay, one of these eyes has to dominate and, you know, yeah. like over the other eyes. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, you know, the whole thing we say, we answer, we raise questions, but we don't need to answer the mm, questions mm. in literature. And this is, does that really nicely. The questions are all raised, but you're not like uh, reductive in ways of like, here's my feeling in a can. You know, you, you're just watching a lot of characters work things out. I mean, it's really just as dynamic as some of the ideas behind it are that the intimacy of these characters dealing with what they're dealing with in time is, I think, very universal mm. in that way, too, which I think is amazing. Mm. I want to, like, keep an eye on you guys and ask, because they, like, is this a good time? Yeah, questions, and we, I have many, so I can keep going, but anyone have questions? Curious to know, actually, how many of you have already read it? I always want to ask this question. Are there anybody, is there anybody, a few of you guys? <laughs> Is this a book that you can't really spoil in a sense, but you actually can totally spoil in a sense? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, there are definitely some, I'm trying to not say too much, but there are some surprises perhaps at the end. Yes. Hi, Meg. Can you talk about your research for the Explorer? Oh, yeah. sure. Um, so that question is asked by a writer who has like, fucking amazing book called The Wanderers that has a lot of research in it about space travel and like I was floored by the research you did for your book um, because one of the things about me as a researcher is I kind of sometimes I get to a point where I'm like it would be easier just to make something up so maybe like <laughs> let's do that you know rather than like go through the laborious like like figuring out like is this accurate you know and so um, things like uh, there, there's certain areas that actually for me are endlessly pleasurable to research and polar exploration is one of them. And I just like reading books about that particular kind of peril. And like, I want to know like what were the different clothes made of and like, you know, what, what kind of medication like would you bring and like, how would it be useful? And so that was, that came from a lot of reading I'd sort of already done and maybe bookmarked or, you know, just like, um, but uh, because um, there there were not many, if if any, examples of the kind of female explorer that I was writing about, I just sort of imported, um, you know, what sailors had written in their journals about being stranded, you know, in the Canadian Arctic, and uh, the um, details from reports on the cannibalism from the Greeley expedition or the Franklin expedition, and. Um, so, yeah, and so most of that research didn't make it into the book, um, which is also another sadness, you know? It's like you gather this interesting information and can't use it, but, um, yeah, I, it, it was done in a pretty scattershot kind of way. Yeah. If you pick up the book and flip through it, which I recommend sometimes for my students to just do, like, hold the book in your hand and flip through it and see how it's laid out, you'll, you'll be pretty amazed. It's quite beautiful, and the handling of like certain experimental modes is, and it, it's handled really gorgeously and the polar explorer sections almost become their own sort of like poetry through the book. Um, they're so beautifully done that I was just sure that you were a polar explorer. I mean, I just couldn't even like, it was amazing. I don't Versus know anything a about person that. who's seen the like <laughs> Kenneth Branagh version of the Shackleton story yeah. like 17 times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty astounding. It's one of the the great, the greatest parts in this book, I think, for sure. 
Thank you. Is there another? Yeah, somewhere in the back. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, when I'm composing a sentence, I'm often just like listening for what the next word should be, rather than thinking of, you know, what a meaning-wise what the what the word should be. And so that might be um, the number of syllables or the the sort of beat that I want the sentence to end on, or it could be um, something about the the sort of tactile mouthfeel of the the words as they go together. Because one of the things that's most inspiring to me as a writer and what sends me back to my own work is reading poetry. And um, and this can happen with certain kinds of uh, really, you know, what, what we were supposed to, I, not supposed to, but like the, the, the tendency is to call it like lyrical prose, you know, and which like experimental, it becomes a label that's so huge yeah, yeah. as to mean very little, like right. democracy or something. Um, but uh, if I'm like reading an amazing poem and, and just sort of seeing like maybe the way two little words rub up against each other and um, how the sound, like, like a word I love, for example, is parcel because of how like the mm. R and the C are together. And, and so if I'm thinking of um, using... A, a word that has an R and C in it, then maybe later in the sentence or the paragraph, I would try to use another word with R and C, but reverse them um, and make it a cr sound. Um, so that's in part why I'm a slow writer, which which I'm fine with. Like I don't need to be a fast writer, but um, I can spend easily 20 minutes on like half of a sentence be because of thinking about those affiliate like sonic affiliations with words. Does that start to answer your question? Yeah. Parcel is interesting because um, there's a study, I, when I was in ESL, uh, when we first came to America, they told us that cellar was the word that most non-English speakers would be gravi would gravitate towards. It's the same thing, I think, parcel, cellar, yeah. yeah. Uh, it has a sound I think most people like somehow. It's, it's so interesting. There's a whole thing of being language writers, too. I mean, I get called this a lot. I've used that term, but it has, like, problem politics, of mm -hmm. course. But do you think of yourself like a language writer? Because again, it's like, then what about the people that aren't language writers? Yeah, I mean, you know, are they just plot writers? I do struggle with plot. I read something where you said you also struggle with plot. Very much so, yeah. That's yeah. why I put like a courtroom or a, like a criminal case in this book just to give give it like some kind of like plot propulsion. I yeah. that. Um, I don't know that, I mean, I don't, to, honestly, like I don't really think of my, like, what a, a label for myself as a writer would, would be generally, but language, I mean, I'm thinking of an essay by Gary Lutz, um, The Sentence is a Lonely Place, um, mm. which is a great essay from The Believer, uh, and he, he talks about certain writers he likes who really do use sound and um, the materiality of language, you know, to get yeah. from one place to another, and, you know, he spends like, you know, eight paragraphs on one Christine Scott sentence that, that has the words tall and tallowy in it oh, and, wow. and the ways in which she's describing like a house with its windows lit up and the windows are tall and tallowy so it's not about like they were tall windows that were like lit with candles but like she gets tallowy from from the candle, but also from the word tall. Yeah. There's something radical in our joy in this, you have to understand, if you're not a writer, because John Gardner called language writers punsters at a funeral. Oh, God. And yeah. back in the day in MFA programs, I mean, there was nothing more criminal than being a writer that was, like, attracted to language. I mean, I was at the Johns Hopkins writing program, and I was like, they, they, they had a lot of, like, they had John Barth there. I mean, come on. And they were like, oh, no, that's really infantile to think about sound mm. and I was like that's all I really care about mm -hmm. when I read. I was very fortunate to go to UMass Amherst for my MFA where a, a brilliant writer named Noi Holland teaches uh, and um, yeah. she was I, I, I mean she was the kind of the opposite of your experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's all she wanted to talk about. So, so some people would be like, could we talk about how to do, like, a plot? And she's like, no. Mm, no, like, I'm, I don't care about plot. And we're like, okay. And, like, to me, I was, that was cool. Um, yeah. But some people were like, 
I've gotten nothing from this class because I haven't learned how to, you know, use Freitag's pyramid to like accomplish my aims in this, you know. Um, so I always just tell him to Google it. It'll take you two seconds to learn Freitag. The other stuff you can't Google. Yeah. Oh, any question? I saw another hand floating somewhere. I think we'll probably have time for a couple more, right? Maybe one or two. Yeah. Somebody somewhere. Well, you don't, it could be to someone who didn't. Do you have anyone? Okay, well, I could ask you another question that I really want to ask you. Could I ask you a question? Oh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm just really curious about your memoir that's coming out in mm -hmm. June, Sick. And um, uh, I, I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about it. You're very sweet to have me insert my thing in here. Um, we're... Um, and I'm in the final edits, copy edits. We just sent it. I guess it's in production technically, although I found another error last, at some horrible hour last night. Um, it's, what was the error? It's, an, it's a name of someone who should have been changed. Ooh, that's and it a was bad not error. changed. Yeah, because I've had three different editors and two publicists on this project, and it's just been a mess, kind of. I mean, this book was supposed to come out in 2017, but uh, I was I had a severe concussion at one point and many Lyme relapses during the the, the uh, composition of this book. So it was constantly threatened. It's called sick, but it was constantly threatened by my sickness, and I have late stage Lyme disease, um, and you know various subsets out of that of all sorts of illness. Um, so yeah, that was like the thing about this book. That's um, I guess it's it's coming out in June, and I still can't believe it because it just feels like it will never be done. But my illness constantly threatens it. And that was another th reason why I love this book because there is so much dis frank discussion of the body and different types of illness. I mean, PCOS, that's, I've never read anyone talk about PCOS so, so well in fiction at all. Um, it's no one wants to talk about endometriosis, PCOS, all these things that women deal with that are quite serious. <laughs> it's polycystic ovary syndrome is yeah. PCOS. Yeah. It was one of the many things I had and like we talked about. And me too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was, I couldn't find it any info on it anywhere. Um, and no one, even doctors, just like rolling their eyes at it. Um, and it was something in my personal like health story that's been really important. I mean, I have very high testosterone. It causes problems in my body all the time, but it's also one of the reasons I'm still alive because a lot of the, my numbers are very bad. Um, but like navigating that, like even the testosterone as a concept of <laughs> being high in your body, like the politics of that. Um, right, and the shame around yeah. like various things. But yeah, there's a, the, one of the main characters in this book like someone tells her, the mender tells her, I think you might have PCOS because, you know, you have certain, um, and she asks her gynecologist and he's like, oh, but, but you're thin. And like a lot of women who have that are overweight. And she's like, okay. Um, and he's like, but you are really hairy. And that's one of the, and yeah. so like, it's as though he's like having coffee with her and noticing like, oh, you're hairy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's a really, those, yeah. that, those sentences literally happened to me. They're so violating and you're just like, okay. And then they're like saying horrible things about other women to make you feel better. And you're like, mm, no, you know, yeah. and no one. Yeah. So, there's a lot, there's also great discussion about alternative health here, which for me was really, really important too. I mean, I use Western medicine and alternative and experimental and all that. And it's really comes alive here. All the questions around ethics, all the questions around, you know, even like supply and demand and resources in this world, you know, um, it made me think in a lot of different ways about, um, how I take up space, what I demand, what I don't demand enough of, how I engage my body, does me engaging my body take, take away from other people engaging their body? Like all those questions are so alive in this book in incredible ways. So your book, you know, there's a way that like, I felt like there was this, even though mine is just a memoir and I, oh, one other thing we were talking about there too is this. One of the things you do really, really well is you actually um, history is alive in this book. Lots of um, just great biographical and scientific and sociological data here, but it's not forced on you in a really weird way, or it like earns its keep really gracefully. And one of the things I actually had to do with my own memoir um, was I pulled out a lot of the people I owed debts to in that book and I put them in the acknowledgements but I ended up tearing them out and I think part of the reason was I didn't have a good model of someone who did it well mm. and I wish I had read your book back years ago 
because I was seeing a lot of people leaning so heavily on writers of the past or traditions in the past out of good intentions, wanting to acknowledge their debt, but they were leaning so hard that they were almost falling the mm-hmm. other, the past, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't do that at all. Like you very gracefully handle this idea of looking to the other and having your, them honored in this book. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of anxiety among writers about originality and, in, you know, the anxiety of influence yeah. and, um, and that thought that, you know, we have to, it, it's that sort of like American, like independence, like pull yourself up by your own <laughs> yeah. bootstraps kind of thing. And, um, yeah. But that's why, I mean, you mentioned the, the leaning against, and an essay that I often use in teaching is Maggie Nelson's um, essay on leaning against, which, yes. yeah. which really talks about how she, in her own work, uses structures and um, uh, rhythms and, and sort of different kinds of language maneuvers from other texts and, and how that feels and why she does it and, and why it some, in certain ways goes against this grain of like, no, you should just write your own book and not be, you know. Yeah. But, um, That's a, it's a great piece of writing. I forgot yeah. that. It's a, it's really inspiring, amazing one. Any um, other questions? Sorry, did I just, were you just saying something? No, just um, one other thing I wanted to add about, I was thinking about shame and the body and um, just just to, to throw it out there, I mean, another interest of mine in this book was to look at um, different kinds of relationships to motherhood that, that women have and some of the, um, the the ways that there's this like competitiveness of, of like you know you have kids or you don't have kids and like what what those things mean and what what if you are a mother but you have certain kinds of ambivalence and like what does that mean versus a person who's chooses not to be a mother or because of circumstance isn't and has ambivalence about that and um, because I think that is also one of the things that I won't say it's taboo because it, it that's too strong of a word but sometimes doesn't get talked about like those yeah. those oh, strangenesses yeah. you know um, among women but also just sort of in one's own mind um, so that was also something I was thinking about a lot when I wrote it I love how you've handled interviews on this because you are really generous about your own experience and you talk about that and, and it's you know it's never like the obligation of a fiction writer to have to tell you what it's based on, but uh, you you you're really helpful in that. And I remember being really hooked on a lot of your interviews because they were helping me. Um, a lot of the stuff like I was writing about, I just people weren't talking about it. They're still not talking about it. So I felt I had to like write something that I needed mm-hmm. years ago and still need. Um, but sh- the sh- issues of shame are anytime you approach anything around women's bodies you know, shame will enter the room and uh, silencing will enter the room and then just little things like rolled eyes and people just walking away. That's always been my experience of trying, being there present in a space and saying, here I am as a woman and people being like, whoa, we don't need to deal with that. Okay. Like you're too much. Yeah. You're always too much. You're always too much. Exactly. And when you talked about in this book, I keep saying you talked about when you're, you know, when it was talked about in, in this book, um, issues around whether you want to have a child or not, those are very much issues. Like I'm in the midst of having just turned 40 and I feel younger than ever in certain ways, but younger than I did at 20, but my doctors and all that, they don't, they don't see it that way. Um, and, you know, you have all sorts of issues around that, very legitimate issues, some not so much. And so, again, these, this mode of, of showing us, I think, was really, really helpful because um, your characters... I've, I've actually never seen a book do it so well, seeing characters that are dealing with these things without answers um, and allowing all of us to enter it. And I think it will apply to a lot of people because even if you're, say, a straight, cis, white male, I mean, these conversations are all around you right now. You have got to be invested and interested in the idea of women's bodies, the reality of women's bodies. I mean, these questions are being weaponized every second around you. So I hope you will also be part of these conversations, even if they're difficult. They're definitely, they're difficult for us (laughs) too. We, you know, they're difficult all around. Any other final questions? I I don't want to ever rush these things, but I always get accused of being too long-winded and wanting them to, I just want us to like hang out here for like four hours with Lainey if we can, but bookstores get nervous. Um, 
Um, does anyone else have anything they're itching to ask? Yes. I was having this discussion with a bunch of academics last night on Facebook. Um, and the Me Too movement, it seems like a lot of people are disgruntled about it being a, we're still in this feminist mode of bodily integrity um, versus agency and power, economic power, agency in the culture. Um, and so I'm just wondering how you feel. Just to amplify, you're talking about agency and power and where Lainey stands um, on the idea within the context of the Me Too movement. Or even both of you. I think, oh. you know, we're given this administration where we have to seriously think about bodily integrity. There's no way to avoid that question. But, the, as, you know, as, as a different generation, we're pushing feminism farther. Um, I feel a certain failure with me too, but it is focused maybe on this, we're still in bodily integrity, and when are we going to, and there's the, there, I think I was arguing last night that there is a room in the movement for agency, economic possession of the culture, there's, there's you know, there's room for equity there, um, hmm. but I, I just raised this to both of you, and just if you want to riff on it at all, because it concerns me. Mm. So um, I noticed when, when you were talking, you were making a, a sort of opposition between bodily integrity versus agency and economic sort of equity, yeah? It was where the conversation went. Yeah, that was where the conversation went. And I guess I would, my, my aim and how I approach this question, whether it's Me Too or, um, you know, the other sorts of political issues is to remove the versus, like is to be able, and sometimes it's difficult, but like to be able to see these things as interdependent and not as, okay, in order to focus on this, we have to negate that, um, which is, I'm not saying that's what you were doing at all, but I, sometimes I find myself in these discussions and saying like, well, don't we have to focus more on this? But okay, we want to focus on this, but it's also, it is related to what it feels like to have your boss, like, put his hand anywhere on your body um, when he is in a position to fire you. Uh, like, that is, is an economic question. Um, and, and I think that um, even if, I, and I guess I, I have nothing particularly wise to say about this, but I, it, I feel a deep sadness um, about the, the ways that, like, different waves of feminism are being pitted against one another. Um, so sad about that. And and just curious and wondering like how we can have a different way of talking about it that that does ha kind of maintain complexity and shared aims and, um, and ambivalence, but not have to say like, well, because I'm a, I mean, I personally am not a millennial. I'm much older than a millennial. But like, if I'm a millennial, I can't get with like a second wave feminist. Like, why? Where does that come from? Like, why is that? Oh. Yeah, I'm. I'm on the board. I mean, I'm Gen X, but close to millennial, and was definitely a '90s feminist in many ways. Um, and I, that really saddens me too. It's like the '70s feminist versus the '90s feminist versus the 2010s, and it's like like. There seems to be so much. Um, I think they all want. We all want the same thing, actually. Um, so, but I, I do feel like. I think I agree with you. Like, I mean, I feel pretty unequivocal about the value of the Me Too movement. Um, it's not going to be a perfect movement when you talk about trauma or when you talk about things. It's not going to be perfect. That's the point. That's why it exists. <laughs> so the conversations, you can't expect them to be conversations in a can. So you're going to get like instant results from it. Um, it's going to be a real messy, difficult thing for a while. And I think one of the hard things about being in America right now is we have to sit in the shit like we're in it right now and we got to untangle all the stuff that we conveniently wanted to not talk about before. Um, it's for me, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of the conversations around the Aziz Ansari case be really awful and uh, this derision of Grace, whoever Grace is, um, has been really painful to watch um, because I don't know. I, I mean, I just don't think it's that easy to say well, that, that wasn't that important. Like that, well, why didn't you do more or whatever? You know, I, I've been in, I'm a pretty strong person and have always been and like strong in a sense, but like I've found myself in situations where I couldn't act with the, all the agency I do possess. And that has a lot to do with my whole history. It has a lot to do with the mo that person's history and it has to do with the moment. And so, 
you know, I've always thought, you know, when we talk about sex and rape, it's sort of a mistake. We should really take the idea of assault and rape and talk about it more on the, um, closer to like things like homicide. Um, <laughs> I think that could teach us more. Because I don't think you would ever say to someone who gets killed or, you know, can't tell, you can't talk to someone who's getting killed or attempted to be killed or, or beaten up. I don't think you would have these sort of discussions about whether it's real or not or you wouldn't doubt their feelings. So I think I would like to always err on the side of believing women. I think there's a very small percentage that are lying about these things. So... Yeah, I think we just have to be in these conversations and, and see how they play out. But I think the thing that can be very damaging is if the conversations are like silenced and we don't get to be in, in our discomfort, which is part of being in our bodies and trying to figure things out. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That feels like a good note. So. <laughs> is it a too sad an ending? Is it sort of a happy question? No? Okay. okay good. Thank you guys. For <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.